0: S-E-H-O-O-L-S-B-I-R-I-T-S. School Spirits. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Holland. Welcome back. I'm not telling you to welcome back. I'm telling our listeners, welcome back to our podcast.
1: We're so happy to have you back.
0: Yeah. The name of our podcast is School Spirits. I'm Katherine. I'm Holland.
1: And we are grad students at Vanderbilt. Yep. Former teachers.
0: Yes. And we're here to bring some research articles to you and talk you through them and see how these might apply to you in real life.
1: And our drink today is beautiful.
0: (laughs) It's gorgeous. It has sat for a while as we refigured out our (laughs) microphone situation.
1: (laughs) This is a drink that we are calling a hopscotch
0: yes um because
1: everyone should have recess
0: oh it like as long as you're not sliding on ice (laughs) on the concrete but yeah I'm longing for some (laughs) recess
1: and we made our own version (laughs) of a New York sour which inspired this but we did not use urban Mm -hmm. we Meant to use scotch, but we did not have scotch, so we used Irish whiskey. But like, this is a
0: theme that we keep getting mixed up So if
1: anyone wants to get us some scotch, that'd be great. I don't know that I really like scotch that much, though. Oh, uh, scotch is actually my favorite. Just like licking a flame. Um, and so this is two ounces of
0: scotch. Yes, well, Irish whiskey.
1: <laughs> and an ounce of lemon juice. Yes, and an ounce of simple syrup. Mm-hmm and then you take about an ounce of red wine and you pour it over a spoon (laughs) so that it sits on the top
0: like a little pretty trifle. Yeah, it is like a trifle. Um, I was trying to think of like the science terms behind why these two materials sit on top of each other. And Catherine says viscosity, density. It's probably something with an ITY at the end. That feels Um, right. So I trust science. Ready? <laughs> yes. Cheers. Oh.
1: Wow. That's totally different than I thought it was mm-hmm. going to
0: be. I thought it was going to be way boozier.
1: It's like fruity. Yeah. And we didn't choose like, a, I mean, we chose a Malbec, which yeah. is not a crazy fruity wine.
0: That's really good, actually. That's delicious.
1: It's not boozy. It honestly tastes like pineapple-y.
0: It does, which is wild because we're sitting beside um, Penelope, Catherine's pineapple inside here, Penelope. She's doing well.
1: She is doing well. She's almost a year old. It <laughs> takes them 18 to 24 months to grow.
0: She she looks very um, spiky and proud, which she is what I hope her, for
1: all of us. Her very <laughs> own personal space heater, because she has to stay above 72 <laughs> degrees at all times. She's gorgeous. Okay. Well, if you guys are into a very smooth, fruity scotch drink that has no fruit in it.
0: Well, Lemons.
1: Lemon juice. <laughs> That's true. But it doesn't taste citrusy, it doesn't it taste, taste fruity. Citrusy. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Taste
1: make yourself a hot scotch while you listen to our podcast.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And we're excited to you, to bring you today some articles that are kind of based off of or like take root in the foundational articles that we talked to you about last episode. And just as a recap, my foundational article was about funds of knowledge. Catherine, your foundational article was about?
1: Mathematical knowledge for teaching.
0: Yes, because it was a Deborah, Deborah Ball. Ball article. Cool, and so we are going to bring to you some articles based in that. Are you still muted? No. Okay. I was making sure.
1: (laughs) The muting is hard, guys.
0: (laughs) We're trying to spare
1: you all of our weird sounds, (laughs) but then we just get accidentally muted all the time.
0: Uh, I know. I'm like, how much is this pop filter actually looking for the snacks? It's not doing anything for the ums. I can tell you that much. Let me talk to you about this article. I'm trying to make it not very long because there's so much going on in this article, and I think it's beautifully written and it's about this really cool practice um, that is um, kind of riffs off of funds of knowledge. And that's why I chose it. So I chose it because I think it shows the evolution of funds of knowledge um, and how that knowledge can be not only taken into schools, but then back out of schools to benefit the community. Because a lot of what we think about with funds of knowledge is like, how do we recognize the, the knowledge, the experiences, the literacies that students bring with them from their homes. But this is like, okay, yes, we can do that. But then how do we use that to benefit the community, which I think is really important. Mm-hmm. So the title of this article is Literacies of Refuge, Piriendo Posada as Ritual of Justice. And this is by Dr. Kati De Los Rios and Arturo Molina. And this is from the Journal of Literacy Research from 2020. So okay. a pretty recent article. I had like downloaded this when I saw it in my browsing app.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> um, so I already had it and I was searching up articles and this popped up and I was like, of course I should do this article. So let me tell you about Dr. Dallas Rios. She is an assistant professor of literacy reading and bi-multilingual education at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Education. So she draws from ethnographic, participatory, and community-based methodologies to investigate language and literacy resources of Latinx young people. And this is all from her page um, at UC Berkeley's mm-hmm. website. Uh, but I think it's really interesting how she specifies that her research makes three contributions to literacy studies. So she says that she investigates how secondary teachers employ critical translanguaging pedagogies, which is like near and dear to my heart. Mm-hmm. her She studies bilingual and emergent bilingual youths reading, writing, and creative performance of Mexican regional music, which wow. is super interesting. She has other articles about that. Um, and then the role of intergenerational community engagement in the lives of Latinx bilingual young people. Uh, so she was a former Spanish ELD and ethnic studies high school teacher. So like this research is coming out of a, cl- a course that she started when she was a high school teacher and then she goes back to do research with the current teacher of that course. That's so cool. Yeah. She has gotten so many awards. Like especially in the past year, I think she got several NCTE awards and she got all of these LRA awards and so like she's just she's killing it. Arturo Molina, who is the second author on this article, is a high school teacher who has taught this ethnic studies course at this high school since 2011. Mm -hmm. I think that she also co-authors another paper with him. I always think it's really cool when researchers and um, teachers publish stuff together. I
1: know. I feel like you talk about it a lot, actually. <laughs> I do. I, do. And I you always it. choose articles that have that
0: happened. Because I, I feel it's like great. we need to hear teachers' voices in research, and we don't very often. It's like so removed. So I always love articles where the researcher works with a teacher to publish an article because they need to highlight like all the work that they're doing, and they don't get to do that very often.
1: I feel like we have done this long enough now since this is our 10th episode. Oh, that you can already see, like, the trends and the types of articles
0: that we choose. Oh, for
1: sure. So, that's just
0: interesting. For sure. Someone should do an analysis on it. Should we do an analysis of ourselves? (gasps) That would be amazing. That
1: would be too quantitative for me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let me tell you about this article. It is centered around these social justice posadas that occur every year in La Feria, California. I don't think that's a real town. (laughs) <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's a pseudonym. I even Googled it and I was like, oh, this is not a real place. I
1: know because you love to like backtrack <laughs> I really and find out the pseudonyms.
0: Um, I do you do you know that like the general area where it is? Um, it's in the inland empire area in California, so like outside of LA. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's centered around these Posadas that happen every year in this town and this English elective um Chicanx, Latinx studies course. Uh, so just so you know, posada means like a shelter or, um, a sanctuary. So in this article, they, they're taking the meaning of posada as meaning sanctuary. Okay. So social, social justice posadas. So this is taken from, um, this traditional Catholic, um, ritual that happens during the Advent season. So they have these Catholic posadas where there's this procession that includes Mary, Joseph and the baby Jesus and they're going through the neighborhood uh, asking for shelter and they like get rejected multiple times. And then somebody offers hospitality. So you can kind of see how this relates to social justice Posadas because basically what they're doing is reinterpreting this tradition by replacing Mary and Joseph with immigrants looking for sanctuary. So it's about immigrants rights specifically in this paper. The Posada that they investigated occurred in 2017. So this is just like right after Trump got elected, the mood was much more dire because of the rhetoric occurring Mm -hmm. um, and like all these very obvious ice raids. Not that this is not still happening in this current administration. I want to underscore that. Um, So these posadas have been occurring since 2008. They're co-sponsored by um, this day labor center, which is a place for undocumented workers to find wages and educate themselves about their rights. And um, the first author of this paper, Dr. De Los Rios, she was the other co-sponsor. So she's been like working with these posadas since the very beginning. Mm -hmm. So this area, La Feria, is an area where Historically speaking, the exploited labor of Mexican migrants created this big citrus industry for white elites. So now in this area, there's this lower cost uh, of housing. So what ends up happening is all of these Latinx communities are constantly surveilled by ICE um, and with checkpoints. So when the Posadas first started, that's when Dr. De Los Rios partnered with them because she was the first teacher of this Chicanx Latinx studies class. So that's the background, that's what Posadas are. Okay. So overall, she is using, they are using Carol Lee's cultural modeling framework. That's kind of their big framework for thinking about um, how this work around the Posadas as cultural data sets could connect to literacy learning, right? Because Carol Lee's work is all about cultural data sets that aren't valued in school and you leverage that for literacy learning. So there's been, she makes they make a point that there's a lot of organizing within immigrant communities to protect undocumented people. And the family has become this unit of mobilization where they develop what they call repertoires of contention. So these um, routines that emerge from struggle in order to confront oppression. So these families, the community, they've come up with these ways of like pushing back against all of these forces that are oppressing them. So the authors are like, why can't we use youth participation in these social movements yep. as a cultural data set? Because they might have experience already in these situations. Yep. So this is obviously connected in that way to funds of knowledge. It's cited a couple of times in this article because it talks about how out-of-school social forces impact students' lives and how it can be taken up in classes. Okay. And they're specifically looking because this is within an ethnic studies course, so it's like a kind of an elective English course, but they're also looking at it as a civics class because civics classes are typically very white, middle class mm-hmm. spaces. Uh, so they're in this paper, they're only talking about this one five-week unit. And good Lord, I, when they say it's five weeks, I'm like, it is wild that you could do this much in five weeks. They've packed so much in. So in these five weeks, because they've also said they've been working on this course for 10 years. Oh, my God. Right. It's beautiful. In this course, um, in this five-week unit, they include a critical translingual approach. So basically considering how your languages are resources and disrupting English monolingualism as the norm. They're using multimodal texts that explore immigration, discrimination, and sanctuary. And these are all aligned with the Common Core, right? (laughs) So like you have this... You can tell your administrator like this is all aligned to common core standards um and they also have testimonials from day laborers who who were involved in that organization the day laborer organization that i mentioned earlier and testimonials are basically like like test i mean testimonies (laughs) obviously (laughs) it's like what the word is in english but basically like people talking about their own experiences and what they went through yeah um they also use two corridos so these are like spanish folk ballads that are rooted in mexico So these are very traditional songs. And then they use the YA novel, The Distance Between Us by Reina Grande, which I've read and is really great. So those are all the materials. So you have like songs, different articles and texts, a book. You have people coming in to talking about their experiences. Um, So then-
1: Can I ask a quick question that you might get into later? Yes, please. This feels hard. Like- how practical is it for a school to bring in a curriculum that took
0: 10 years to write and like all these amazing resources? Yeah, I think it would be really difficult. And I think that's why this is like in over so many iterations every year. I think it seems like because they're developing this curriculum together, that seems a little easier, right? Like if you have a partner that's willing to work with you and create these resources, but I don't know if you have to start off having everything
1: so is there and i'm sure you'll get into it but is there a conclusion like this should be happening all over or is there a conclusion like this was cool
0: i don't know if the conclusion was like this should be happening all over but i think it was more like this can be happening all over like we can bring our students resources into school and like end up helping benefit the community um and also like highlighting for students places within the communities where they belong, and, like, making those connections. So, but we'll, we'll get there. I love that. So ultimately what students did was they conducted their own research around myths about immigrants. They created these posters because ultimately what they were doing was they were organizing the Posadas for that year, which is incredible. I'm sure that that was also possible because Dr. De Los Rios, like, helped start the this the social justice posadas yeah so then as so at they're creating posters for this procession but they also because they're organizing the posadas they organize themselves into committees and a lot of the activities included like they had to send letters to businesses to ask them like would you like to participate would you like to be um, a sanctuary point where we stop along our route so many different literacy skills that are being developed over this five-week unit. I still can't get over the fact that it was five weeks. Overall, so I know I've told you a lot about like what they did in this class, but I wanted to tell you about the the way that they approach their research. So they use this participatory design research approach where you're looking at the tensions within communities and you're figuring out where social change needs to happen. And it's all rooted in community knowledge.
1: So is this like YPAR, like Youth Participatory Action Research? Yeah, I think
0: it's very similar to what that is. I okay. think that's that's pretty much, I mean, I don't, I'm sure there are a lot of nuances between those two, but it's what it reminds me of. Cool. So both of the authors point out that they are also bilingual children of Mexican immigrants and spent portions of their childhood in La Feria. So they were able to get more open accounts of the processes involved in this work. So I think that points out how important it is to have relationships with people in the community and not just like swooping in and being like, I mean, as a researcher swooping in and being like, here, I'm going to give you this uh, research to do, or I'm like, you know, I'm gonna give you this project to work on, go for it. Or even as a teacher swooping in and being like, I know what your community is all about. Like, let me tell you, we're gonna use this knowledge about this and making all of these assumptions.
1: Yeah, I think it also just speaks a lot to how powerful it can be if teachers in schools come from that community, yeah. which I know can't it always happen, but happen when it often. does happen, it is really powerful.
0: I think even in even in like rural areas, I've seen people that I went to high school because I went to high school in a very rural area that um, ended up going like some of my best friends ended up going back to teach there, mm-hmm. and like I know this one guy ended up creating this um, like like rural centered kind of English course where they had talked about literacies occurring on the farm because there's like a lot of farmers that live in the area. And I mean, I think it was like a lot of males in that course that registered for that specific one, mm-hmm. but it's like, they don't feel like they connect to the typical English class. And I think he got a lot of buy-in and participation from these students because it was centered on, and he knew them and he knew the area. He came from there. And It was like centered on what do I know and what does this look like in practice, like focusing on those literacies as well.
1: I think it also speaks to like if you are a teacher that teaching in a school that isn't the community that you came from, you can look to these teachers as resources and as experts of that community if you're looking to do something that honors that community with
0: your students. That's a really great idea. So let me talk to you about the findings. Yes, I can't wait. So ultimately what they noticed was this work heightened students' socio-political awareness and supported them in speaking back to white nationalist discourse. So it wasn't that they're not saying like, oh, all of a sudden students are aware of what's going on around them. Like they were already aware of the problems and they were already a part of the resistance. It just was able to like provide them support and ways to speak back to it, to that discourse in a more powerful way. Mm -hmm. So they noted that um, they were able to make connections between their experiences with what they were reading. They were able to note that Latinx youth's youths experiences aren't all the same, because sometimes we collapse it as in like, I feel like what ends up happening is like, all Latinx kids are like Mexican-American kids. And that's totally untrue. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, the fact The fact posters, the posters that they created for the procession, these allowed students to combine their cultural knowledge, including meme knowledge, with civic discourse. Um, Also, as they participated in the procession itself, students noted how being at the event that primarily used Spanish made his family feel like they belonged, they felt safer, unlike school spaces, which were using English as the primary language. They also said that being in community that was advocating for each other eased their anxiety. And students noted how this ritual was a form of resistance. Um, so, like, even one student that was had just turned 18 started registering people to vote. One student noted that, okay, first they learned about this stuff in school, but then it was amazing that they then actually did this stuff in the community. So mm-hmm. it's just so, like... The students learning about the importance of action because so much of what kids do in school tends to be like separated from what's going on at home or within their communities. So I feel like
1: that also can answer the question. Like, I don't know if you got this as an ELA teacher, but as a math teacher, all the time, every day, was like, why does this matter? Why (laughs) does this even
0: matter? And so that's like so great that they get to actually use it immediately so they don't have to. Exactly. Ask that question. Exactly. Um, especially thinking about the letter writing that they did. Like that's a real world form of literacy yep. that is really important to know about. Um, so in the discussion, then the, the authors talk about how the field needs to think about the direction of participation to do work ethically. Right? So like we were, I was talking about earlier, they weren't bringing a project to the community. They were building from the work that was already occurring. And I think sometimes we come... I'm not going to say we I think sometimes some teachers come into spaces with this kind of attitude of, of white saviorism and think like, what can I do for this community because they need all of these resources, they need all this help. But like that's a lot of times you're not investigating what's the work that's already being done there. And I think that's so important. I think that's really
1: powerful. I like that a lot.
0: My standout quote, uh, Las Posadas demonstrate one way that Latinx immigrant communities reject hegemonic constructions imposed on them in order to create their own intergenerational spaces, fertile with critical awareness, critique, and political engagement. It is these precise spaces and movements that literacy educators need to see, hear, and learn from so that we can usher in more dignified literacy instruction that builds on marginalized students' vast amounts of knowledge. There's so much knowledge that's not just like I think in funds and knowledge it mentions like this family runs a store like the student knows about transactions with money. But like this is these families regularly participate in resistance to these oppressive forces like mm-hmm. that's such an incredible source of knowledge that is just going unrecognized in school spaces. Yeah. So thinking about teacher takeaways, because I think a lot is going on in this article, and it does seem overwhelming to think about how you could do a unit like this after the authors have been working on this course for 10 years. This (laughs) does not happen overnight. But I think maybe the first step is thinking about what are the social movements that are happening in your community? And what are the organizations that your students or their families may already be a part of? I mm-hmm. Think looking for those organizations is really important. Um, I'm thinking of right now. I'm thinking of my people in Austin and how mutual aid has been such an incredible force for sustaining people there yeah. um, after the blackouts. Uh, there are there's so many grassroots organizations that are like really actually putting in the work that I think that we as teachers and researchers can like build off of their efforts and not try to like create our own thing to like build, make our own space.
1: Makes me think of like Gideon's army in Nashville. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. Exactly. I love that. Yeah. Another one. We can think about how we can include students literacies and cultural data in ways that don't just appropriate them or make them cheesy. I feel like we've talked about this before. So like they created these meme posters that took facts about immigrants and like, or- misconceptions that people had about immigrants and then it was it was funny. Mm-hmm. So instead of doing like take a quote from this book and make a meme from it, like that seems so it's not meaningful at all. Like yeah. how can we use these literacies in a meaningful way?
1: A meaningful way.
0: Meaningful way. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about like one way that you could could do this using students' literacies in a meaningful way is consider addressing the community. So I was thinking of um, the letters that they wrote to businesses a teacher friend of mine who taught creative writing did this with her students. And it was really cool. They wrote to businesses that they loved, told them how much they loved them and their products. And in a lot of cases, the kids got like letters and products back. It was amazing. A good friend like, of
1: mine did that with our
0: seventh grade kids. Really? Yeah. They
1: it's They would so like write fun. them out and then they would come to the school, the letters that they got sent back and they were they would be these like adorable like big envelopes with like their names on it and
0: it's so fun to like get that when you walk into school one day yeah i think i think some of the kids got like gift cards or, yeah like, like somebody got sparkling water like, <laughs> it was really cool uh and and like what an interesting way of of like figuring out how communication in that way matters mm-hmm. Um, and I think my last one is just that this is something that I think about a lot, because I think what happens in a lot of English classrooms is that we focus just on texts and making sure they've read the texts and they understand critically what the texts mean. And like we're leaving out the writing. Mm-hmm. We're like having all this input and we're neglecting the like meaning making that could be happening from output. So like it's important to have rich text and have conversations. But students... Need to share their voices and have their writing, um, their meaning making, whatever form it is, read by real audiences and not just responses to reading. Because research shows that that's by the time you get to high school, most writing is only just responding to what somebody else said. Like, yeah. what happens if we are engaging with an audience authentically? Like, that's so important, and we need space in schools to do that. So That's great. That was that article. Um, <laughs> thank you, Dr. De Los Rios and uh, Arturo Molina for. I feel like that that's such piece. a good
1: application of like the core ideas of funds of knowledge. too. Yeah,
0: exactly, and showing like how expansive that idea has become too.
1: Yeah, cool. All right, you ready for mine? Yes, please. Okay, my article is called Mathematics Teachers' Subject Matter Knowledge and Pedagogical Content Knowledge in Problem Posing. This article is in the International Electronic Journal of Mathematics Education, which is an open access journal, Hmm. and it was published in
0: 2018.
1: Cool. So the authors are – the first author is – Eugene Lee, who is currently an assistant professor of math education at the University of North Dakota. But at the time of publication of this article, she was still finishing up her doctorate at Texas A&M. She got her doctorate in 2019. Cool. Her interests include affective math engagement, Ooh. which you know I'm all about. I know. <laughs> Teacher pedagogical content knowledge and identity and large-scale math assessments, which is like so interesting to me that so those, diverse. those three things are usually yeah. at odds with each other. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. the other two authors are Robert Caprero and Mary Margaret Caprero. I think that they are related in some way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, that would be a wild coincidence if not.
1: <laughs> well, the coincidences I felt kind of like like a crime investigator, even though they haven't committed a crime because I like went down into like their history and like he went to the University of Miami for his master's and she worked in Miami-Dade County as like a teacher (laughs) and as a principal. And then they both went to University of Southern Mississippi for their PhDs. And then they both started working at Texas A&M in 2000, the same year.
0: But also, how wild is it that they both got into the same PhD program and got jobs at the same place? Mm -hmm. Like the couple dream.
1: Well, I don't know if they're a couple.
0: Oh, well, same last, same dream.
1: I know. (laughs) But I feel like they have to at least know each other, right? (laughs) So (laughs) So I don't want to speculate, (laughs) but Capreros, if you're listening, (laughs) give us the tea. (laughs) So Robert Caprero is the co-director of the Aggie STEM Center and professor of math education in the Department of Teaching, Learning, and Culture at Texas A&M. He, on his site, it says that his expertise is applied research in school settings, program evaluation, the teacher as change agent for Mm -hmm. STEM school improvement, and STEM student achievement. Mary Margaret Caprero is a full professor of math education in the Department of Teaching, Learning, and Culture. Her research interests include teacher knowledge and preparation in math education and student understanding of math concepts. That's what I've got on them. They seem to be super involved in like a bunch of really cool stuff at a and um, but that's like specific to that school. So this article, If you remember last episode, we talked about the article from Ball, Hill, and Bass on mathematical knowledge for teaching, which was that specialized knowledge for math that teachers of math need to know that no one in any Mm -hmm, other math mm -hmm. profession needs to know. The article I'm talking about this week, the Lee and Caprero squared article, (laughs) is they basically use this idea of mathematical knowledge for teaching as their base theoretical framework of teacher knowledge. This is my favorite, a qualitative interview study. And they interview four teachers in Korea, which I thought was really interesting. The goal was the authors wanted to investigate teachers' knowledge in problem posing. So problem posing is a method where you ask students to create a mathematical problem to demonstrate their specific type of mathematical knowledge. So let's say that they are studying addition. You could ask the students to, like, give me a math problem in which the answer would be seven. And oh. so that's what they talk about when they say problem posing. It's this, like, specific, really, really specific way of having students grow their knowledge in that area. Can
0: you tell like how sophisticated someone's knowledge is by the problem they immediately think of? Totally. Because I immediately just thought three plus four. So I think my knowledge is not that sophisticated. (laughs) Well,
1: seven's a tough number anyway, so... (laughs) Since Ball and Friends' original conceptions of mathematical knowledge for teaching, her idea has been elaborated a lot of times and specifically to this article to include what they call subject matter knowledge, which is like the math you know, Mm -hmm. and pedagogical content knowledge, which is like probably the most similar to this idea of mathematical knowledge for teaching. Pedagogical content knowledge, math knowledge for teaching, they also split that into two different knowledges. I know there's like this really easy flowchart, but I'll just describe it to you. So the first one is knowledge of content and teaching. And the second one is knowledge of content and students. And so one is like how well you know your students and like what students are able to do and how well you know how to teach things.
0: Like, is it students specifically like, the students that you're teaching right now in your classroom or like in general this age group of students?
1: I think that it would be hard to develop knowledge of a specific age group without basing it on knowledges the, the, of the students you have okay, in front of you. Okay, cool. Because this whole thing is like how do teachers build these knowledges kind of. Okay. Okay, so this the study design was they they it was actually really cool. They they gave their interview protocol inside the paper. It wasn't even like an appendix. So they had like a category where these were like the questions to test subject matter knowledge. And those are questions like, how do you define problem posing? Just to see if they knew what it was. To test content knowledge in teaching, they were asked questions like, what do you think about incorporating problem posing into your class? And then to test knowledge of content and students, they were given like two math problems. Mm -hmm. And they were like, okay, a student wrote these problems. What do you think about them? So that's like, and then those are just examples. They had a bunch of questions in those umbrellas, but that's how they based their data. And then they did a bunch of cool coding within the responses from the teachers that they got to come up with their findings. Cool. So they found out that Teachers' subject matter knowledge with, aggr- with regards to problem posing was pretty good. Like, teachers knew what it was. They knew why it was important. They were bought in. They were all the same across the board. Awesome. But there was a discrepancy between their knowledge of problem posing and their actual problem posing. Huh. So there was a discrepancy between what Ball would say is their mathematical knowledge for teaching and then the actual practices that they were doing in the classroom.
0: But they self-reported those practices, right? Yes. Okay. So it was like them saying like, I know about this, but I don't necessarily like do it.
1: Exactly. Okay. 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 Yep. And a lot of the things that they said make a lot of sense, like limitations in the amount of time that they had, mm-hmm. limitations in what was available in their curriculum, mm-hmm. stuff like that. They also um, were asked to so they were given the two problems from the students, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Before they were given two problems from the students, they were asked to pose a problem for a specific mathematical topic. And so they themselves actually engaged in the problem posing. and they that's one of the ways that they tested their mathematical content knowledge. And so there was also discrepancy between that and this idea that like they, knew what it was and knew how to do it well. They, like, weren't very good at the problem posing thing. Mm-hmm. The standout quote, and I'm going to jump into the standout quote and then the teacher takeaways because it just kind of goes naturally. Even though those those findings weren't, like, super concludy yet because I think this is the cool <laughs> part of this paper. I also
0: like the word concludy. <laughs> Thank you.
1: <laughs> You're welcome to use it in any of your papers. Just cite <laughs> me, please. <laughs> Uh, Okay, so my standout quote is to effectively teach problem posing, teachers must have extensive and comprehensive knowledge of and experience in the problem posing process. Lack of knowledge and experience limits teachers' actual teaching practices. So if you don't actually do the thing, you're not going to get good at doing the thing is the idea.
0: Like you have to actually do the problem, like...
1: You have to engage in the practice that you're asking students to engage in because how else are you supposed to know? Like if you think about you like teaching literacy, would you be able to teach a book?
0: If I hadn't read it. If you um, hadn't read it. Listen, (laughs) I've known many English teachers that have not read the
1: books. And how good would you say that their teaching practices were?
0: Well, I mean, I I think there's a difference between what you're talking about and like, like, for example, like if I did like an independent book study, right? Like I'm not going to read every single book that the kids have, but there's like a different purpose for doing that, right? Right. Like I'm not trying to teach like the actual content of those books. Right,
1: exactly. And so the takeaways then, I'm sure you can kind of see where this is going, is if you are a math teacher or if you're a science teacher, do every problem that you give your kids. If it's too much, don't give your kids that many problems. If you don't wanna sit down and do a 20 problem worksheet, your kids probably don't wanna sit down and do a 20 problem (laughs) worksheet either. So give them a five problem worksheet or give them a one problem homework worksheet But you need to do the problems because each problem presents a unique challenge to those students. And if you don't understand the challenges that you're asking your students to engage in, you don't understand what they're actually learning. And so it's better to go deeper with less than Mm -hmm. to just give them like a sheet of practice problems because that's how they learn and that's how you know what they're learning. Okay. But just doing the problems is not enough because you can't just like fill out an answer sheet because then you're not actually thinking through and like building that mathematical knowledge for teaching muscle over time and experience that these authors claim that you need to have to improve your teaching practices. You need to, when you do those problems, think, What are all the ways that kids could do this problem Mm. in the right way? What are all the ways that kids could do this problem incorrectly? Is the work that they're spending on this problem actually the work of the standard that I'm asking them? Or are they spending a lot of time doing like silly calculations Mm. instead of what the standard is? And doing the problems will help you think that, which then builds that muscle over time. And so the main idea, the main idea is that doing the problems that you assign your kids and doing the types of work that you ask them to do can build your mathematical content knowledge and experience in those types of problems, but there are countless of those types of problems. And so you have to be really diligent about doing this and then building your mathematical content knowledge as these authors found actually improves your teaching. So doing the problems in this reflective way legitimately makes you a better teacher. So this is just a way to become a better teacher without having to go to a PD session Mm, or get coaching from somebody. This is just
0: something that like you'd be doing in your regular daily practice.
1: Exactly, because you're just learning how you're asking your students to think about things. And so then you learn more about how your students think about things. So then you can tailor your teaching to how your students are thinking and not the content.
0: I love that. I remember my favorite. Well, he's just the most amazing teacher. Um, he taught AP Calculus. So I took AP Calculus my senior year, and I remember seeing um, his like notebook sheets, like covered in like all the the problems that we were doing, and like how like, he worked it out. Very. I mean, we'd like do it on the board, but he already had like sheets and sheets and sheets of like you could do this, but you could do this also. And I just thought it was like incredible that he like took that much time and effort to do it.
1: And I know there's a lot of pushback of doing the problems. And that's why I said like, then don't assign so much. If it's like more work for you to do 20 problems, then just assign one problem for homework. One really good problem is going to teach you more about what a kid knows than 20 similar problems that aren't that good.
0: Well, and the conversations that you could have around that one problem, right? Instead of just like, rushing through like we got to get through all of these answers. Exactly.
1: And so that's my article. So it was really cool to see the ways that these authors kind of took up Ball's ideas Mm -hmm. and studied it further.
0: Awesome. And that's what we have. Great. Well, we want to Say our thank yous now. Right at yes. the end. Um, this so...
1: episode was brought to you by.
0: <laughs> First of all, thank you Anna for all of your social media work and your gorgeous graphic designs that
1: are now being featured on our brand new
0: website. That is
1: still a work in progress, so don't be too excited about it. But if
0: you want to go there, I think it's actually. I think personally, I think it looks really cool. So don't like. Downplay our efforts on <laughs> this web page.
1: If you want to go there, it is just schoolspearspodcast.com. Easy Super to remember. easy to remember. We paid $4 for that domain name. <laughs> <laughs> and it... Has a form if you want to contact us. It has links to all, all of, of our, our episodes. episodes. It has our reference list if you want to see where you yes. can access all of the articles. We're very that proud we talk of that about. reference
0: list. Full citations in APA style. Coming soon is all of our drink recipes. Yes, working on that.
1: I know that's the important part, so we'll get that out totally. asap. Yes. Um, and also thank you as always to Emma, who. Does
0: all of our sound editing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She's very excited about our mics. She Mm -hmm. said her ears felt much better. So that's great. (laughs) And as
1: always, if websites are too much for you, as I can understand, we're, we're still on Twitter and Insta, even though we're sometimes quiet because... We do have jobs in our
0: students, but we're trying. Yes. <laughs> it uh, you know, the semester really started off with a bang and we're getting there. But check us out on Instagram. Our Instagram handle is School Spirits Podcast. Podcast. And then our Twitter handle is School Spirits underscore. And those are all of our things. Yeah. So
1: cheers. Cheers.